Amen. First Samuel 21 this evening, the title of the message, or the consideration, is Bad Idea. And we know that faith, uh, to be proven authentic, is it's going to have to be tested. And the tests are... They, re- they are repeated. But the flip side of that is, being that the world is under a curse, the unbeliever goes through tests also, but they're really not tests, they're just trials. Not about faith, it's just getting through life. We're considering tonight David fleeing for his life, and while he's doing this, there are other people in the world, in Israel and beyond, that have problems of every type. The ones who face it in earnest before God, of course, uh, are blessed, ultimately. And the others, well, we just uh, assign those to God. He'll, he'll sort them out. But for those who claim Christ is Lord... We very much pay attention to these stories because we know God's eyes are on us and not in, this, not in the way that he's looking to judge us. But he certainly wants our performance to be the best that it, it can be. Uh, who does, what Christian does not want to perform the best they can perform in good times or bad times? And so that's a little bit of a thought that occurred to me as I was, was walking up. Genesis 31, verse 3. Then Yahweh said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your family, and I will be with you. This was very personal between God and Jacob. And it seemed to be a good idea at the time to Jacob. He was going to go home. He had lived with Laban for 20 years, and now he's coming back home. And on the way back home, we read in Genesis 32, Then messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. (laughs) That's not good news. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. So he took measures to sort of lessened the blow that he anticipated coming from his brother in anger. Because when he left, last time he saw his brother, it was in anger. And my point is, there's Jacob being told to trust God, uh, God God telling him, trust me, go home. And then he, he does that. And what happens is there's this giant test waiting for him, the requalification of our faith. And so we're not supposed to be surprised. We're supposed to kick into action what to do under these circumstances. And I hope there are many lessons from David this evening. So just a brief review now. In chapter 19, David was chased by Saul. And where did David go? To Ramah, Naoth, where Samuel's school of the prophets was. He ran to a man of God. Saul, of course, chased him there. God delayed Saul, gave time for David to escape. So, departing there, David doubles back and gets with his very close friend, his dear friend, Jonathan. But he, the, the friendship, they have to go separate ways, not uh, because they didn't get along, but because circumstances demanded this. When David leaves Jonathan, again, where does he go? He's an enemy of the state. 
He will be, he is thought of as a, a, committing high treason against the king. He goes again to the people of God. He goes again to the godly people, to the high priests, Abimelech in this case. While he is there, he'll notice a man named Doeg is also there, Saul's man. Saul's man spots David there. David gets a bad feeling about this, as does the high priest, I'm sure. And so on the run for his life, David comes up with a good idea. At least he thought it was a good idea. It was really a bad idea. And that bad idea was born of losing sight of God's care in the midst of pressures. That's where his mistakes began to um, expand. He sought refuge amongst the enemy. And so now we look at verse 1. Now David came to Nob, to Abimelech the priest, and Abimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So the high priest, he knows that this is not the way it should be. <laughs> David, again, uh, having left the school of the prophets, met with his friend, now at the house of God, not knowing where to go, not wanting to jeopardize his own mother and father. He couldn't go home. He knew Saul would do harm to them. So again, the second time, he goes to the house of God. We can say it that way. We're not surprised that David heads twice to the men of God in the direction of the house of God, the people of God. We would have been surprised to find Saul do such a thing. The only time Saul went to church was to hurt people at this point in his life. There at Naoth, and he's going to do it when we get to chapter 22 next session. This priest is the great-grandson of Eli, who was largely responsible for discipling Samuel himself. And this city, uh, Nob, known as the city of the priest, the Bible refers to it that way. And the priests, they ministered uh, the rituals for God's people, which were highly symbolic and had much to do with the education of the people, visible Worship was what they were uh, conducting. The prophets, on the other, other hand, they ministered the revelations, the invisible side of worship. Uh, and they were to you know, bring what the, the Lord says to the people. This David coming here to the house of God will end in death for Abimelech and many others. It will be quite a tragedy. Evil is real. And uh, it says here in verse 1, and Abimelech was afraid when he met David. He had a bad feeling about this because he knew Saul had destabilized the kingdom with, you know, his, just his madness. He ruled through fear and terror, but terrorizing those under him. He upset the kingdom. And again, Saul cultivated this idea of mistrust. And so suspicion and fear... Uh, which will, will evolve into bloody terror next chapter. And it says here in verse 1 at the bottom, and Bimelech speaking to David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? David at this point was given the rank of captain over a thousand men. By our standard, that would make him a full colonel, uh, possibly a lieutenant colonel, but he's, he's got rank. A colonel is one rank lower than a general. And so the high priest is saying, you're, you're a, uh, a battalion commander. 
which is lieutenant colonel, and where, where are your men? This is not right. Verse 2, so David said to Abimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Four lies and what we call two sentences. And David is lying no less to the high priest. Uh, if you're in ministry, uh, don't be surprised if people, people who claim the Lord as their Savior lie to you from time to time. Hopefully, it's not all the time. Uh, as I look at this, I ask myself, what would I do in David's place under such pressure? What would you do? Would you dare to give an honest answer to that question? What would you do if you were running for your life? You had absolutely nowhere to go. You were marked as an enemy of the state. And that's where David finds himself. God has not left questions of right and wrong to be decided by circumstances. A lie is a lie. And if, if you lie to save your life... It's still a lie. It's, it's not, uh, okay, that wasn't a sin because I really needed to do it. War, of course, puts a lot of pressure on people. And thank you that God is merciful because God does not throw this up in David's face. Uh, this is uh, real stuff. Uh, David's lying, however, before we say, well, you know, it was a lie. I can understand it. No harm, no foul. Not true. That lie of David led to the deaths of all the priests, the male priests in this village. So it, uh, it was not harmless. And scripture does not cover or gloss over the shortcomings and the sins of its own heroes. But it tells, tells it like it is. And it, fortunately, it also tells the good things, the victories also. Shows uh, the heroes in the Bible at their best as well as at their worst, if they're given enough space. But it tells these stories and struggles to us in the light of God's commandments nonetheless. And the commandment is, you shall not bear false witness. Leaving the reader to gain understanding and direction and strength in life. And so when we're cornered and we lie, we know it. Is a, the bigger problem is, is when we lie and we excuse it. That's when there's a serious problem brewing. Well, Saul's brand of love had reduced David to the status of a fugitive in verse 23. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. <laughs> David, he proceeds authoritatively, does he not? Well, again, he's... Battalion commander, I mentioned full colonel, he's probably lieutenant colonel, two grades below general. Uh, he, he's, he's speaking with authority. And so he says, you know, that part of him kicks in, verse 4, and the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is only holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Why no food? Well, because the priests were putting their efforts into preparing the holy bread first, and they had not gotten to, evidently, preparing their own breakfast. It's probably early morning. Um, and David, again, on the run, probably famished. And 
The common bread referred to here in verse 4 is the ordinary bread. And he said, there is no regular bread for us to eat. It's still, you've got to wait a while for that. Uh, but the consecrated bread that was set apart in the tabernacle on the table to be eaten only by the priest, Leviticus 24.9. And we're not told here, but we are told in chapter 22 when Abimelech is telling Saul what happened, that Abimelech sought God. He did not just say, well, you can have the, the showbread that's only for the priests. He does not do that. He seeks the Lord. And that's quite impressive. It meant nothing to Saul. In fact, it just meant nothing because he's a devil. <clears throat> but <clears throat> having direction from the Lord and still determined to meet protocols within that permission of God, the priest continues. And it's a, he does a great job. He doesn't back down from David. He asks these questions, and he's not just careless with the things that he's been entrusted with. He doesn't say, oh, you're hungry? Here you go. Um, a lot of times, folks get quite upset, when you, or at all. Uh, but the ceremonial procedure, the regulations, uh, even though they are overruled under the circumstances, uh, they are not done so uh, in a sloppy way. Now, of course, our Lord brings this passage up. His disciples were going through the fields and they were taking grain off the stalks and rubbing them together, blowing the husk off and eating the grain. And, of course, the Pharisees had a problem with that. The problem, they had, Pharisees had a problem with the disciples wearing the sandals on the right foot. Uh, it, whatever they, they did, there was something wrong. Our Lord never agreed with rabbinical Judaism. He never honored it and stood up to him every time. He got a bad name for that to the point where they, they killed him. Uh, but he refers to this passage, and he says, don't you know the scripture? Don't you know what David did under a certain circumstance? You know, they're, they're in human need. When, you, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that he gave us, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. So before we get to dealing with our trespasses, we're, we're asking for provisions to survive. My point, bread's very important, very important to God that we eat. He built us this way. Be nice to not have to eat. It would change a lot of things. Probably no one would work. <laughs> Just lay around all day. <clears throat> You wouldn't even read the papers because nobody would be printing them. But, all right. Anyway, that was my break. So, uh, of course, our Lord was dealing with the inflexible, misguided legalist that thought it was their role to add to the rules of God. But higher laws exist. And when they are in conflict with lower laws, they, are the, they suspend the lower laws where the two run into... Uh, conflict with each other. So this is a priority. And he says, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Now this stipulation goes back to Exodus uh, for the Jews, that uh, they were to keep separate for three days in Exodus 19. And so again, we see the priests not just, here you go, David, have what you want. What if they were not? What if he said, well, no, I was with my wife last night. Uh, then the priest would have said, well, you're going to be ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. You have to wait till sundown. 
Uh, that's how that would have been dealt with, but it didn't have to go that far. Then, verse 5, David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And there's an indirect reference to Exodus 19. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is, in effect, common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So David is telling the story, evidently, and he's saying, I had to, you know, I had to work on the priest. I had to tell him things because he wasn't just so forthcoming. Now, the priest is nervous about this thing. He's got this fear going on. Again, as we mentioned, Saul. And uh, David, of course, he's hungry. He's very hungry. And he says, well, the bread is really expired. It's not the fresh bread you just brought to replace it. And so... Surely there's some space for this. And he's right. And this under the because remember, the king believes David is on official business. It's not a casual thing. Oh, I forgot to bring my lunchbox. He believes he's on an urgent call for the king, the king that was given to Israel by God. And so Abimelech is he's in a tough spot. It says, which had been taken from before the Lord in verse six, for from the Lord, it comes in the first place. That's what we understand. That's why when he says, which had been taken from before the Lord, well, the Lord gives bread. That's part of why it was in the temple. And it comes from him. It belongs to him. It speaks of his presence and his provision. Exodus 25. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. And that's why it's referred to by the rabbis as the bread of the presence of God, because it is set before him. It's very serious, is my point. It's, not, uh, it's no longer just bread. Uh, so he says, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken. So they've swapped it. And that's what David is saying. This, it's expired. Uh, surely you can give me some space here. A fresh work is what that is to the priest. To, daily ro- to, to weekly rotate the bread. And one of the lessons, I think, that exist in that, uh, several, as I consider the bread being changed in the tabernacle, is sometimes in life, in God's presence as believers, it is not today's bread, but it is yesterday's bread. It's yesterday's faith. Sometimes I just don't have it fresh. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm flying on fumes, you might say. Uh, life gets pretty rough that way. Faith is not uh, always so choreographed where it's just this, you know, dance of the nutcracker or something, and it comes out so gracefully. It's, it can be quite brutal. So other times in God's presence, uh, it is not fresh faith we have before him, but faith we used to have, saying the same thing, uh, slight variation. Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. One of my favorite verses. Jesus answered them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. You've got enough. You've got all sorts of moves. You have fresh material. You've got some old stuff, too. And, uh, I, you know, it's a, just a, 
I don't know if that verse appeals to you the way it appeals to someone in my position, but it is uh, quite a remarkable verse, and I see it in the temple. Uh, the fresh work, but yet there is also that which is not so fresh, which the, the priests who ministered there were able to partake of. However, there's always that word of caution when there is liberty, uh, disregarding the so-called ceremonial laws uh, can be dangerous, can be dangerous to our faith because we can become sloppy and careless. Years ago, I remember preparing communion articles in the church in, when I was in New York City. And there was one of the brothers, and he was sort of snacking on the, the wafers, the bread. I was kind of new in the church and I didn't like it. I didn't, you know, get nasty or anything. But I thought it was very immature and um, uh, missing a lot of things. I could go on and on, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, and he, he was a shallow person who was he was actually the head usher. Um, so that kind of sloppiness does not just happen. Um, it, it takes a little time to keep passing over important points not thinking things through when in your devotional time. Devotional time is so important. It's not the same as study time, at least if I'm telling you how I approach it. My study time is one thing. I get my maps and charts out, and I look up words, and, and I cross-read. But my devotion time is me, my systematic reading through the Scripture, and I want God to speak to me about life, about things. It's very hard as a pastor because I see a sermon in every verse, and I you know, have a quick note on the side. But uh, the, my devotion time is devoted to God for me so that I can be edified, a better Christian. And uh, the ceremonial laws, yeah, we're not under them, but we still pay attention to them. As a witness to their importance, you could bring up men like Uzzah, who touched the ark when he wasn't supposed to, or King uh, Uzziah, who went into the temple to offer incense, you know, these ceremonies were not for them. So we New Testament Christians say, yeah, we're not under the law. We're free in Christ, but we're not to be reckless, and we are to pay attention to the spirit of the letter, uh, what God is saying to us. Verse 7 now, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before Yahweh, and his name was Doeg, and Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Now we play the dramatic music right here, the mention of this man, Doeg. Um, we are now introduced to another vile, sickening, disgusting, despicable, dark, devilish, uh, egregious character. Doeg. Um, we, it'd be nice if they left the G, uh, <clears throat> took the uh, E out of his name and just put dog. He's the one that's going to actually swing the sword to kill the priests in the next chapter. And why should I be fine with that? Why should anybody be fine with that? Uh, the exact nature of his business there, why he's detained, we're not sure, except to say it is the Sabbath, and he probably has traveled as far as he can, and he's stopped at the tabernacle and waiting for sundown. Uh, either way, there he is, giving everybody an uneasy feeling. You know, you just know with some people that 
they're not, you know, they're just, they bring trouble when they show up. May we not be that way. Uh, David knew, and he puts it in here early because the character comes back in. I think David knew that there was evil in the air with this man. And I think Abimelech knew also. Um, He's an Edomite, the, the descendants of Esau. They were pretty much enemies of God's people throughout their history. Obadiah, his entire prophecy, the prophet of Obadiah, deals with the Edomites. Uh, they hated the Jews, and uh, this—he uh, was—he may have been, you know, Saul warred against the Edomites. He may have been captured and enslaved, and said, "Look, you know, I'm, I'm a skilled herdsman. I'll take care of your herds like they're all my own. I'm, I'm yours now." That would not have been uncommon. We remember uh, General Naaman had a little Jewish girl that was a slave there, and what did she do? She looked out for Naaman. If my master would only go to Israel, there's a great prophet there. Anyway, verse 8, And David said to Abimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So he's keeping up with the the untruth, (laughs) the lie he started. But he's uncomfortable being unarmed, and we're happy that he's that way, because men should be (laughs) a little bit in a bad neighborhood. It would be nice to have my... Anyway, verse 9. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Hard to do a verse like this justice because it's quite, it's quite meaty. So he, the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Eli. It was legendary. Everybody knew the story. And this sword had been used to kill before. Certainly by David when he took the head of Goliath with it. Perhaps by Goliath. Maybe Goliath never got to use it. Maybe everybody just fainted in front of him. And I don't know. Uh, maybe, but either way, there it is. And to David, the sword of Goliath was a reminder of his true source of strength. Now, this gets interesting because he knows that God gave him the victory. Remember that day? Who is this Philistine? And, you know, who dares blaspheme? And he went, and went out and took him out. David's going to misapply the lesson. He knows this is connected to God. And he's going to do the wrong thing with it. He's going to come up with a bad idea. I think at this point is when the bad idea kicks in. Up to this point, he doesn't know where he's going to go. He he gets a weapon. He needs food. We'll take one problem at a time. But then when he asks for the, do you have a weapon? Well, I've got the sword of Goliath from Gath. That's where Goliath was from. That's when David, I can use that sword. I can run to Gath. I'll take the sword. I'll use it as a gift, as a token of peace. (laughs) Hey, I killed the sword of the guy I killed, your champion. And this is what's what's going on. Some of the past is going to flare up, though, and make a mess of things. Uh, It's a timely reminder, but again, it seems to have been misapplied. He says, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah, which is to us Christians, we look at that battle, that duel between the giant uh, enemy of God's people, Satan, and David, of course, 
type of the Lord. Colossians 2, verse 15. Because this is what David did, and this is what our Lord has done. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. And then Hebrews 2.14, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that is the Lord Jesus, shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil, So no matter what we do with our Bible reading and study and come to church, it can be nice and cozy and fun, but it's always about war. It is always about some spiritual resistance against us and our serving the king. Uh, It's always about Jesus Christ. Uh, he, He says here that the sword is wrapped behind the cloth, in a cloth behind the ephod, uh, the high priest ceremonial robes were there. Uh, this is found in, of, uh, I believe it is Leviticus. It is in the, the second, one of the second four books of the Bible, Numbers, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, one of those. Uh, it's in two of them, actually. If you will take that, take it. Uh, so he says, take the sword. It, I, I like the way it is. It's blunt. It almost sounds like the way it's written, like the priest wants to, now, okay, we've got, given you the bread, take the sword, and go. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the feel behind this. Um, but had David trusted the Lord uh, at this point in his life, the way he trusted the Lord to slay the giant, what would have happened? Well, what's going to happen would not have happened is, but here's an, another interesting part about the verse. David's response. For there is, well, the priest says, for there is no other except that one. It is unique. It cannot be duplicated. It is a sword with a lot of history and just a little bit of time, but not much future history. Such are the enemy's weapons. Where's the sword of Goliath now? Who knows? Who cares? Uh, but that's how it got out of the temple. And, so, and David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. A reminder for David from the Lord that he will care for him. There is nothing like this, David. This sword, that victory, there's nothing like it. And we, we sing songs to our Lord Jesus with the same with the idea behind the songs. There's no one like him. There are uh, many people who have been crucified on crosses, but only one cross of Christ. And there's... Uh, Many empty tombs, but only one tomb that was emptied (laughs) the way the tomb that Jesus departed from. Uh, So these distinctions are significant. So here's this token given to him. There is none like it. It uh, covers, it's a literal statement. It's a historical statement. It's a spiritual statement. There's no sword made by anywhere around like this. The history behind it, nothing like it. And the meaning of God's Victory. Uh, God never needed David to use Goliath's sword any more than he needed David to use Saul's armor. God was his sword. God was his armor. Now, that's a nice Bible lesson, is it not? Go out and live it. A whole nother story. God keeps it real. This sword never helped him. It really got him in trouble. Verse 10 Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul 
and went to Achish, the king of Gath. David arose and fled that day from before Saul. Then Saul would not chase him into Philistine territory is the idea. He is desperate. He's now going to the world for help. We read this. I, you know, in my earlier years reading and loving this story so much, it was, David, what are you doing? Why would you go to the world for anything spiritual, any protection like this? Uh, as the years have gone by and found out just how much the devil can throw at you through even other people. He's desperate. The pressure is on him and it is intense. He's not thinking straight. He's not thinking with God. God is really not, he's conscious of God. I'll get to why I know that in a moment, or maybe you know it too. Uh, But his choices are neither sensible nor helpful. (laughs) Uh, Almost with a chuckle. He is doing what he would never do if he had a clear head. Haven't we been like this? Under such pressure, you can't think straight. There's a simple decision that could become, he is jumping out of the fire into the frying pan. I know it's backwards. Because Saul is the fire. I mean, if he stays there, Saul's going to kill him. He's got to go somewhere. Uh, Achish is not as bad, but he's bad. He's a Philistine. And so, be careful to judge David at this point. Would you have done better? Ecclesiastes 7, 7. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason. Yeah. Oppression, that pressure, begins to squeeze out of us what's inside of us, and what's inside of us may not be as strong and noble as we think. Why Gath again? Because he thinks Saul will not chase him there. And he also thinks that Achish is going to be somehow receptive. And he is going to be receptive of David to a point. There's a deal breaker coming when they remember that there are songs written of David's exploits. Saul has killed his thousands. David is ten thousands. Saul, the sometimes churchgoer, drove David to a point where he felt safer with the enemies of God's people than with his own people. Huh? Are, there, are there churchgoers like this? Are there churchgoers that can... I don't mean... You know, the church gets a b- bad deal when it stands up for what it believes in. If, if the church doesn't stand up for what it believes in, it's apostate. If it does stand up for what it believes in, it's mean. So, you know, so what you say, what well, I don't care what you think. I know what the Bible says. But this is not the case with Saul. Saul just wanted to kill David. Because he was jealous of him. And it made Saul feel small. And he would not have that. Saul had to be the best in his self-love. His brand of self-love drove David to feeling that he had a better chance with the enemy than with God's people. May we never be like that as a church. But you'll always have people that will accuse you who are committing blatant sin. Blatant in your face. And demand you look the other way. Or else you're not loving. You know, I'm also not stupid. So, verse 11. <laughs> How many faces, faces flashing <laughs> flashing before me over the years of people who try to pull things like that and then go out and talk about you? For he just said, well, the commandment is clear. There's no two ways about this one. 
I'm not being mean. If I wanted to be mean, I'd go key your car while you were waiting for me, <laughs> waiting for the appointment. Anyway, verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to him of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? So, <laughs> David's exploits, again, had become legendary, even amongst the enemies. Word got back. People, oh, we love David. You, who do you guys got? Who you got? You don't have Goliath. David took him out. Who do you? We got David. Who are you guys boasting like that? That song, that was the beginning of his troubles. When the women brought that song dancing, you know, Saul, yeah, you did all right. But David, that song was the beginning of his trouble, and now it's in the middle of his trouble. Thanks, ladies. <laughs> David's response. Who would think that such an innocent celebration would cause one man so much grief and God would take that grief and turn it into uh, a king? He developed a, a king through this. Verse 12. Now David took these words to heart. I bet he did. And was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He could see on their faces that this wasn't good. When they brought that up, isn't this the, the same David? So David shows up at the Philistines, you know, in the city in Gath. And he, he enters the city. He's carrying the sword. He's got his men with him. And he says, I want to speak to the king. I have a present for him. And so they bring him to David. And David presents the present. And it's going pretty well there. And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, what did you say your name was? David, the same one that the songs? And David, of course, realizes this has just quickly gone sour. And verse, 20, verse 12, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish the king. Uh, again, it's a sad thing when we, have, when we think we have more hope amongst unbelievers than anywhere else amongst the people of God, or, or alone. And throughout history, false believers like Saul have been very dangerous to true believers. Think of the Spanish Inquisition. If you're not familiar with it, you're missing out. Uh, go find out about Thomas Takamata. You couldn't Takamata torturing anybody uh, who didn't agree. He was a psycho, evil person. Anyway, Jeremiah the prophet was imprisoned by the Hebrew king Zedekiah. And Jer Jeremiah was struggling. I mean, Zedekiah, he you know, would go back and forth, bring Jeremiah. <clears throat> he wanted to listen to Jeremiah, but he was a very weak king, and he was also evil. And uh, anyway, Jeremiah said, please don't send me back to that prison. If you do, I'm, I'm going to die. And, and the king says, okay. But then the king turns his buddies loose. Okay, do to Jeremiah whatever you want. Well, they throw him into uh, this pit, there was no water there, but it was mire, and the scripture says, and Jeremiah sank in the mire. And, of course, the, the eunuch, uh, Ebal Melech, uh, he rescued Jeremiah. But Jeremiah thirty nine twelve he writes down for us what Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, said about Jeremiah. And what I'm pointing out here is you have... A, a false believer like Zedekiah, who claims to be king of God's people, tormenting and punishing and persecuting God's prophet, the righteous person. Then you have 
the Babylonian king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who says, take him and look after him and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. This is after he conquers Jerusalem and takes over the city. He gives his commander these instructions about Jeremiah. Look after him. Take care of him. Do him no harm. And it's shameful. Why didn't the Hebrew king think this way about Jeremiah? Religion is some dangerous stuff. And the truth is what stabilizes it. But not only truth. You've got to have love. Because, again, if you just have truth, you just go around clobbering everybody. And not only love, you have to have humility, a view of yourself, to understand that you're not all that. Um, these are important, and there are other things that belong to it. That's, again, why our Bibles are so thick. Um, so anyway, David realizes the implications of their realization. So what else, what is he to do now? <laughs> Theatrics. <laughs> Go crazy on him, David. Verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. What, what is this? Uh, I mean, that's what Abimelech's going to say, the same thing. This had become David's Hagar. You know, God told Abraham that he and Sarah in their old age would have a child. But it took years. And so they couldn't wait anymore. They took matters into their own hands. And Sarah came up with this brilliant, bad idea. I know, here's Hagar. Have a child with her. Abraham says, okay. And the next thing you know, Ishmael is born and he's a problem through the rest of his life. His hand is against every man. Every man's hand is against him. We have to be careful as we go through life that we don't create these Hagars because we can't wait for God. That's the lesson that comes out of this. Wait for the Lord. But it's painful. It's going to be more painful if you don't wait. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of a man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in Yahweh shall be safe. The fear of man brings a snare. That's where David was, snared by Saul. And he lost sight of trusting the Lord. This man after God's own heart is acting crazy in front of scratching the door, drooling all over the place, making these noises, running around wild. While the real madman is back in his palace that his David's devil-in-law, Saul, who's the cause of all this, is back home being catered to. And David is reduced to such behavior for nothing, for, for doing good, for doing what he was supposed to doing his duty. Verse 14, Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Well, you got to, you know, they were civil enough not to say, Well, he's insane, he's Jewish. He killed Goliath, let's kill him. At least that doesn't happen, because God is protecting David. But it's a real good question. Why have you brought him to me? <laughs> well, we didn't know he was crazy. He shows up with this sword. It was a nice sword. We felt you'd like to have it. Now, the king, you say, why would the king be impressed? Says he's going to make him look like a star amongst the other kings. Because the, 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 the Philistines had five cities. There were five lords of the five cities. Gath was one of them. And so... That would, you know, he'd be, you know, boy, look at that. Achish got the sword of Goliath back. Way to go. It'd be thumbs up all on his page. Anyway, <laughs> verse 15. Have I need of a madman 
that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence. David can hear. David's like, excuse me, I can hear you. I can hear you talking about me. Shall this fellow come into my house? This is sarcasm and is humorous. I think it's intended to be humorous. I think Achish is a pretty secure king. And he said, what are you bringing me a kook for? But these theatrics, this quick thinking of David, saved his life. Now, from heaven's point of view, uh, we act like madmen. We act like we're out of our minds whenever we put ourselves where we don't belong and we know we don't belong there. But life is, it's hard. It's, it's so many temptations. Uh, he almost perished seeking refuge with the enemy amongst the pagans, escaping now escaping the Philistines, he's going to have to come up with another plan. I mentioned to you that David was not really mindful of trusting God. He was aware of God. He never lost consciousness of Yahweh, but he wasn't acting on it. He took matters into his own hand, thus the Hagar illustration. And the way I, we know this is at right after his escape, he writes two psalms about this. I don't know of another episode in his life where he writes two psalms about the same episode. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 are about his pretending madness there in Gath and escaping. And in these two psalms, um, he admits, he emphasizes that he was not trusting God. Uh, this had a, a lasting a heavy impression. He, he failed in his own heart. He said, I blew it. I wasn't trusting God. But instead of dragging his knuckles all over the place, David writes a psalm. Verse 30, uh, psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Remember, he wrote this after he wasn't trusting Yahweh when he went to the world for help. Verse, uh, psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of Yahweh encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 15 of Psalm 34, The eyes of Yahweh are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Okay, wait, wait. Saul has ruined your life. You've got this devil-in-law chasing you wherever you go, and you're writing praises to God. It's sort of like Paul when he was in jail. Paul was saying, pray that I have boldness to preach the gospel. Instead of pray, get me a good lawyer. And it's just, the, you know, this, uh, this balance these heroes have when the Spirit fills them. It's what we want. It's what we're attracted to. Then Psalm 56, In God I will praise His word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Well, if he stayed back and let Saul catch up with him, he would have found out, Right? But he did not do that, of course. He's getting it together. He's going to end up in a cave. <clears throat> and he's going to write a psalm about that, too. David's on a roll. This was sort of a, a, a wake-up wake call for him. He's like, I thought I was trusting God, but I really was not. And I found myself in a situation because of a bad idea. Misapplying the leading. Psalm 56, verse 13, For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling? That I may walk before God in the light of the living. 
So David says, after surviving this, I got to live more for God. That, that was his conclusion. That his word did not let him down. For you have delivered my soul from death. I dodged this giant bullet. Born of my own bad thinking. And so faith must be tested to prove that it is faith. And that it will remain genuine. And it's proved more than once. Proven more than once. But we grow fatigued. We get tired of the cycles of trouble. I think that's why many of the older saints don't always finish well. They get tired. Paul says don't grow weary in doing good. Uh, weariness is uh, something to manage when it comes your way. Almost done. <clears throat> to David, somewhere in his heart, if you, if you say, well, you know, if I were in David's spot and looking at the circumstances before us, the lying, <clears throat> the running to the enemy for help, because he could have just ran to the cave first, but he didn't think of that, because that whole sword thing threw him out. I got a good idea. This is God. I'd take the sword to get me get out of this. Prior to these psalms, he seems to have surrendered to the fact that God was not interfering with his life as much as he wanted him to interfere. To trust God while overcoming and winning, that's one thing. To trust God when, God when you're losing, when you don't see him interfering. When, when you see uh, damage taking place, that's another thing. Peter, the martyr to be, and he knew it, God promised Peter, Jesus Christ promised Peter, that he would die a martyr's death. Well, there came a time in the church history while Peter was still ministering that the Christians were being persecuted. And so Peter writes to them about their persecution. And he never tells them it's going to be okay. He tells them, you know, stay strong in the faith, preach the gospel, um, manage the church. He tells the, the, the pastors in the midst of persecution, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not as overlords. Uh, then, but he says this, 1 Peter 1, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. And pause there. I get a little tired of the genuineness of my faith being tested. I'd like to do it once or twice, and that's it. <laughs> but when I remember that it is precious, that there's more to it than the suffering I'm going through, that it has meaning and purpose to it, even if I can't identify these things. David couldn't identify it. He wasn't sure he was going to get on the throne and be the king. The whole anointing thing with, with Samuel, the oil poured on him, now he's drooling on himself. Peter continues, though it is tested by fire. Fire is hot, as we know. There's no such thing as fake fire. It is hot, and it hurts. He said, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about eternity with us. It's all about the next life to the glory of Christ. Otherwise, my suffering just becomes tedious. The world suffers, but it's pointless in the end. Let's um, hopefully gain some lessons out of this experience and stop here. It gets worse. Next session. Let's pray.